And if you'll open your Bibles, please, to Luke 7. We're going to look at verses 11 through 17. The Pew Bible page is 863. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. We're going to talk today about a mother's commitment. And the word of the Lord says this. Soon afterwards, he went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was following her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is bread that feeds us. It is water to our thirsty souls. We've come together hoping for a long, cool drink today. We pray that you will indeed refresh us from your word. We pray, dear Lord, I pray that you will be the speaker. I pray that you'll be the one who brings to us refreshment and good news. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. She was the queen of commitment. He was her whole life. She was unreservedly committed to him from the day he was born. She remembered that day in great detail. His scrunched up little nose his eyes barely able to open, his little fingers, his little toes, the strained high-pitched cry. She watched him grow up. He played with the children in the street, and she kissed his skinned knees and wiped his tears when he came home with a streaked face. She watched with a strange mixture of delight and terror as he discovered girls as a young teen. She guided him through the tough years with his dad, when his dad was more than a dad. He was also his tutor and his boss as the boy tried to learn his trade. Her unreserved commitment to him became even more apparent and much more important when dad was no longer there. Death had come for her husband. She and the boy were left alone. The grief in her soul was tempered by the security of having a strong, healthy son. Her unreserved commitment to him, excuse me, that was important in her day. A woman had no legal standing in society unless she had a man to look after her. A single woman was unemployable. No one would hire her to do anything. A woman couldn't give testimony in a court of law. 
She couldn't stand worshiping beside her man in a synagogue. She had to stand behind the screen that separated the women from the men as she worshiped the God of Abraham. This was more than just an inconvenience in a society that made no provision for Social Security, food stamps, widow's benefits, welfare, life insurance, any kind of support. Being vitally committed to a man who could provide for your needs was more than a luxury. It was an absolute necessity. So her commitment to her boy worked both ways. He received unreserved support, love, and encouragement, and he, committed to her just as deeply, was her security for the future. And then the worst happened. In an instant, it was all gone. It was so unexpected. One day he seemed fine. Then suddenly, without warning, he was gone. Was it an accident? Was it an illness? Was it a senseless act of violence? We don't know. We're not told. But we are told other things. We're told that the funeral was well attended. A great crowd accompanied her in her grief and sorrow. All of her friends, all of his friends, went with her to the graveyard. The funeral would have been the same day as his passing. That was the custom. It would not have been expensive. The body would be washed, wrapped in a sheet, perhaps with some spices in the windings of the sheet, if she could afford it. He would have been laid out on a bier, a plain board, most likely something simple covered with a shroud. The pallbearers would hoist it on their shoulders and walk behind her to the graveyard. More than sad faces would accompany her. The custom was for loud wailing cries, often provided by professional mourners if they could be paid for. They would accompany the procession. The whole thing was macabre to modern eyes and ears. The cemetery was always outside the gates of the city. Picture the scene. She's weeping in her grief, accompanied by her weeping friends and the loud cries of grief common to the day. They pass through the city gates. They lift the dust of the dusty streets with their shuffling feet. It's a hopeless scene. She had been totally committed to her son, the queen of commitment. She had been totally committed to him, but who, oh who, would now be committed to her? And then unexpectedly, she ran right into the answer to the question. Jesus of Nazareth, who was leading a crowd coming into the city. If this woman leading the crowd that day was the queen of commitment to her son, the man leading the crowd coming into the city that day was the king of commitment to the children of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Taking the scene in in an instant, understanding what was going on, understanding the grief and the insecurity and the pain, Jesus said to the woman, do not weep. What a silly thing to say unless you're the one who can fix the problem. And he's the one who could fix the problem. He stopped the funeral, reached out and touched the bier. The pallbearers, confused, wondering like the woman, what is going on? Who does this guy think he is? They, they stop for a moment. They look at each other confused. They set down the bier onto the ground. And then Jesus did something that only he could do. Nobody else in the world could do it. He spoke to the dead man as if he were alive. He didn't just speak. He commanded him. He said to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And the boy woke up. 
And the boy sat up. And the young man began to speak, showing that he was fully alive. And then Jesus turned and gave the boy back to his mother. He is the king of commitment. He's the one who has come determined to overthrow death and its damage. All the damage it's done to the scattered children of God. On this day at Nain, the queen of commitment ran smack into the king who is always and ever committed to undoing the damage that death has caused. Jesus Christ is unreservedly committed to us. And the big idea that we're going to study this morning is simply this. Because Jesus is committed to us, it makes all good sense for us to be fully and unreservedly committed to Him. Let's look at this passage together. And let's witness the commitment of Jesus Christ to us, specifically the commitment to overturn death and the damage that it has done. We're going to do that by asking a series of questions. First question is simply this. What is it in this account that indicates to us Jesus' total commitment to overthrow death? How do we know that Jesus Christ is totally committed to overthrow death? Look first in verse 14 we find that he stopped a funeral in its tracks. Here's the first evidence of how Jesus feels about this business of death and the damage it does. First thing he did was he stopped the funeral in its tracks. Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still. That would have been a shocking thing to do in that day. Any good Jew would know, if he'd been well taught, that to reach out and touch a coffin or a casket or anything associated with death would instantly make uh, one ceremonially unclean, unable to go into the temple until you had done a purification ritual. Jesus Christ, the irony is, Jesus Christ is the one guy walking around on planet earth who didn't need to be cleaned, who didn't need ceremonial improvement. He was the one guy who was clean, and he reaches out and he says, wait a minute, I'm going to fix this problem. Funerals are about several things, aren't they? One of the things we try to do at funerals is honor the memory of people who've passed away. But another thing we do is we comfort the loved ones who grieve. These things are necessary because sin has brought death into the world. And it, it, we're, it bothers us. We're moved by it. We understand when we're in the presence of death that something has gone terribly wrong. We are not at peace in the face of death. And so one of the things we do is we'll have a memorial service to begin to do, begin the healing process for us to begin somehow to come to terms with what has happened. A funeral is for the purpose of helping us somehow begin to adjust. It's a, it's a reaction that we have to what's gone on. Now, if that's true for us, I want you to observe the reaction of Jesus in the face of death. He he isn't at peace with death, and he's not going to try to make peace with death. What he does is, he's got a better idea. He says, I've got a better idea. I'm just going to cancel the funeral. Jesus says, I'm not going to make peace with death. I'm going to cancel the funeral. Can you imagine the reaction of the people while Jesus does this? Jesus, I mean, get the picture in your mind about what's going on here. 
Jesus reaches out, touches this thing. These guys look, what, what's he d- doing? Well, I guess we put him down. This is that Messiah guy. This is that, that uh, rabbi guy that everybody's over the moon about. He doesn't want us to go any further. We'll just put him down and see what happens. Then Jesus speaks to him and, and heals the problem. But they don't know. In the instant that Jesus stops the funeral, they do not know how the outcome is going to be. And you can almost imagine in their minds. Can't you imagine the conversation that's going on inside their mind or even between them? Jesus says, stop, stop, just put him down, put him down. So what do you mean, stop the funeral? We're in the middle of a funeral here. Don't you, don't you see what's going on? We've got a funeral happening here. Yeah, I'm canceling the funeral. Well, what do you mean you're canceling the funeral? You don't need a funeral. What do you mean we don't need a funeral? Well, nobody's dead. What do you mean nobody's dead? There he is. There's the body. Jesus says, not for long. Not for long, because he's going to fix the problem. Because you see, whenever Jesus is around, his friends never stay dead for long. You get it? You get it? Jesus says, I'm not going to make peace with death. I'm going to overturn it. You don't need a funeral if nobody's dead, and this guy's not dead. I'm going to raise him back up to life. And dear ones, one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to do that for every one of us that have put our faith in him. Because if you're the friend of Jesus Christ, trust me, he's going to overthrow death on your behalf too. That's who Jesus is. He is absolutely committed to undo death. He's absolutely committed to undo the damage that death has caused. So the first evidence that Jesus is going to undo the whole thing, overthrow the whole thing is simply this. He cancels the funeral. He stops the funeral. And then look in verse 13. The next thing we find is that he had compassion on the widow without her even asking for it. Verse 13, the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, do not weep. And then he does what he does. Now, the interesting thing to notice about this is simply that nobody asked Jesus to do this. Did you notice that? I mean, here's the picture. Here is this lady and this group of friends and mourners that are coming out of the city They are weeping, they are wailing, they are broken-hearted. They are broken-hearted about what's going on here. They're not paying any attention to what's happening. And this other crowd is coming right at them, and there's some guy at the front of that crowd. They're not asking him to do anything. But look at what it says in this verse. It said he had compassion on her. He had compassion on her. When he saw her, he had compassion on her. He didn't wait for anybody to step up and say, Jesus, there's a problem here. Could you come and help us with this? Jesus, there's there's this little thing that's happened here. This woman is grieving. Is there anything you can do for her? Nobody even asked him to do it. Jesus just took the initiative. Let me tell you something. Jesus takes the initiative in every one of our cases. Jesus takes the initiative in every one of our cases. Do you know why you're sitting in church this morning? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're here because Jesus Christ took the initiative. He looked down and saw you in your grief. He looked down and saw you in your sin-soaked misery. And he had compassion on you before you you could even raise your eyes to heaven and cry for help. He was already at work, headed your way. It's very interesting, this story about Jesus going to this little town of Nain. You know... We're not told that he does anything else at that place other than encounter this. It's almost if we're not told what happens after this. 
But it's almost as if he had walked all of that distance to get to this place at just the right moment in time, at just the right point in history to encounter this woman as she's coming out the gates of that, of that little town. He just arrives at the perfect moment to fix the problem. And then as far as we know, he turns around and goes back home. We don't know what he does after this. The only thing we're told that he does in Nain is this. Let me tell you something. Jesus made up his mind that he was going to set his affections on you, that he was going to bring you into his family. Yes, you have to respond. Yes, you have to say yes. Yes, you've got a a, a yes in the business. But if he had not taken the initiative, nothing could have been done for you in your case, just like with this young man. Jesus takes the initiative to come to us. Jesus came to earth to save us. He could have sat in heaven. He could have stayed there and said, those people are slobs. I don't, I don't want to go down there. What am I going to do associating with, with a group like that? They think they're all that. Let them think they're all that. Jesus said, no. Thinking that they're all that, I will come anyway. Romans tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to take the initiative. He did not wait for us to ask to have our problem finished, he came and died for us and then said, here it is. I've done everything for you. Come on in. Jesus has taken the initiative to solve the problem. Look also with me a little farther down. We're going to look at verse 14 and 15 now. The third uh, instance, if the first instance is he stops the funeral and the second instance is he has compassion without even being asked, the third proof, the third evidence that he's absolutely determined to overturn death is simply this. He exercised authority over death on her behalf. He exercised authority over death on her behalf. Look, then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus did something that nobody else could do. He spoke to that young man, and in the words came the power through the words that Jesus spoke, came the power to bring life back to the dead, to bring the dead out of their death and out of their dying and back into life. He did it through his words. Isn't it interesting to notice that every time Jesus raises somebody from the dead, he does it the same way every time? Have you noticed that? There are three instances in the Gospels of Jesus raising people from the dead. This is the first. Apparently, this is the first one that Jesus resuscitated or raised back. He speaks to the young man. He does it again with Jairus' daughter a little farther along, some time later. He does it exactly the same way. He speaks to the little girl. He says, little girl, get up. He raised just before his own death, he raises Lazarus from the dead. How does he do it? Stands outside the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Have you noticed that every time Jesus decides to raise somebody from the dead, he does it in one way and in one way only. He does it through his words. You need to notice that because he still does it that way today. He still does it that way today. Jesus Christ has a power that nobody else has got on planet earth. He has an authority in his words that has the power to bring life back to the dead. Think about it. 
Think about it in your own case. How did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? How was it that you were spiritually raised from the dead? Wasn't it the case that some friend or family member or some preacher someplace or somehow you turned on your TV or you flipped on your radio and there was somebody talking about this strange guy about G- called Jesus and before you knew it, there was something on the inside of your heart that wanted to know more about that and you started chasing that and where did you end up? Bible Fellowship Church on Mother's Day in 2000 and whatever year it is, 16. Right? How did that happen? It happens because this is what God does. This is how he raises the dead. His spirit puts life into the words of this Bible of Jesus. And that life, somehow, that secret power, as John Calvin called it, there's a secret power in the word of God that somehow can call life back into lifeless souls. That's how he does it. This is why we come here every Sunday morning and read our Bibles together and study together. We don't come here to get a lesson. I hope you don't come here just to learn. And nothing wrong with learning. Learning is a good thing. This is not an educational institution. This is a place of supernatural power. And when the Word of God is preached and preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, something far greater than education is going on in this place and in places like this. The actual voice of God is coming again to the souls and spirits of men and women who are lost in sin, who are dead and on their way to destruction and reviving them again and blowing life back into them and bringing them back to life. That's what you come to church for. You don't come to church for some little instruction. If you want that, you can get that anywhere. Come here. Come to places like this to hear the voice of God with power. That's what it's about. This is how Jesus does it. And by the way, he not only brings you to life that way, he sustains you in life that way. Those of us who have had that life given back to us come here to have that life revived, refreshed, empowered, and increased every time we walk into the place. That's what we're doing here. This is how Jesus does it. He has exercised his power through his word to be able to destroy death and bring life back to those who are needed. Look a little farther down in 15. In 15, we're told that he undoes the damage that death has done. He undoes the damage that death has done. It says, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and he gave him back to his mother. What an interesting thing to do. He gave him back to his mother. Now, you could, <laughs> you could almost understand the, the, you know, the disciples, the guys that are following him around trying to learn how to do this stuff. You know, you can, you can kind of see them saying, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 Jesus, have you thought, think about this. Don't, don't, don't give this away. You got pure gold here, Jesus. I mean, think about what we could do with this guy. We could take him from town to town, and we could say something like, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus of Nazareth and Young Johnny, whom he raised from the dead. And now a few words from young Johnny about his experience of being raised from the dead. Jesus, you understand this could really be helpful to our cause. He had 90 minutes in heaven, Jesus. And he can talk about it, and this is going to be great. Jesus says, cut that stuff out. Send the boy back to his mother. He says, look, 
Here's why I raised him. I raised him so he could finish the work that I made for him to do. I gave him to his mother to take care of her. Death has done damage to her. She's a widow. She's got nobody to take care of her. Let the boy go back and take care of his mother. That's how he'll testify. That's how he'll show the great power. That's how he'll show what great things God has done. By undoing the damage that death has done. And so that's what he's doing. And that leads us to a second question that will help us along. He's not only shown inevitably through these four instances that he's absolutely committed to overturning death. He is absolutely committed to undoing the damage. But the question that comes after that is, okay, since he has done all of that for us, how should we respond? What's our response? What's a reasonable response? Well, it's right here in the text, isn't it? Look at verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all. I bet it did. Can you imagine? <laughs> just put yourself in their picture, in their place for a minute, all right? Just picture yourself there. I mean, you're one of the pallbearers, you know? And you've been carrying this guy, and you know very well he's dead. He is thoroughly dead. And, and he's laying there, and Jesus speaks to him, and you're thinking to yourself, this is really going to be interesting, isn't it? Right? And then he sits up. And just to prove that it's not just, you know, some kind of a chemical reaction, he begins to speak. I bet fear did seize them. Don't you ever lose your fear of God, and I mean fear. I mean fear. We're supposed to fear God. Yes, we're supposed to love Him. Yes, we're supposed to feel secure about Him. Let me tell you something. He is always good, but He's not always safe. Right? He's always good, but He's not always safe. He has the power to take life away, but He also has the power to bring it back again. Do not lose your fear of God. We're supposed to have a healthy respect and fear of God. They feared Him. One of the things that you and I need to know is... People in our society need to know that we fear our God. And I mean that in the best way, in a proper way. Not a craven fear. Not a craven fear, but a genuine respect for the one that we love. A genuine respect for the one we love. They not only feared uh, God, but also what do they do next? Verses 16 and 17. They feared God, and they began to glorify God. To glorify God is just to, to... Say what he's famous for, right? Saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. In other words, they talked about the beauty and glory and wonder of what they had seen. Dear ones, this is our responsibility, isn't it? Isn't this our responsibility too? Can I ask you a question? What did Jesus ever do for you? Yeah, what did Jesus ever do for you? Oh, he saved you from death. Oh, he took your hell for you. Oh, he suffered the infinite, eternal punishment of God for you. What did Jesus ever do for you? How in the world can we be silent about what Jesus has done for us? How in the world can we stay silent about what Jesus has done for us? If it really dawns on us what our Savior has done for us, 
it ought to be one of the most transforming things in our lives, shouldn't it? To be able to say, hey, let me tell you about the guy who did for me what I could never have done for myself. Let me tell you about the guy. Can you get a witness? You can get a witness, can't you? And then what? Then what? What's the conclusion? Well, I think the other thing that we can do in order to show his glory is simply this. We have to realize that everything in life, everything in life worthwhile requires unreserved commitment in order to realize its benefits. Everything in life worthwhile requires commitment in order for us to realize its benefits. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me illustrate it through three or four practical things. Number one, marriage. You ever think about the fact that marriage is one of the greatest benefits you ever receive? Marriage is one of the great benefits that God has given to humankind, isn't it? God said in the Garden of Eden, God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Let me give you a witness about that. It is not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to tell you something. I have lived in this rotten skin of mine for 63 years. And when I was a young guy, I thought I could live alone. But let me tell you something. The older I get, the more I agree with God. It is not good for the man to live alone. There you go. We can get a witness about that too, can't we? But, let me, but let's think about that for a moment. That's a great benefit. Marriage is a great benefit to humanity. It's good for the man. It's good for the woman. It's good for the family. It is one of the building blocks of society. But unless you commit yourself fully to marriage, it can be hell on earth and disaster. Right? Because in order for you to reap the benefits that God has built into this, you absolutely must unreservedly commit yourself to the one you are married to. You see what I mean? Anything worthwhile on earth requires unreserved commitment in order to reap its benefits. Think about a marriage where a couple commits themselves entirely to each other and what a blessing that can be. What about our society? What kind of society occurs when neighbors refuse to commit themselves to the good of the community at large? You know, on June the 6th, 1944, a bunch of young guys threw themselves out of landing crafts on Normandy Beach. Most of those guys were kids. They were probably teenagers or early 20-year-old kids. They committed themselves fully to doing what their nation had asked them to do. And because of that, we have the privilege of living in a world that is a post-Adolf Hitler world. Because those young men committed themselves to do that. That was a social commitment, wasn't it? What if those kids had said, hey, this looks dangerous. I'm not so sure I like this idea. This is, you know, you could get hurt. You could get real hurt. Maybe, you know, maybe Switzerland wouldn't be a bad idea for the duration. What happens to a society when that becomes our, our concern for the society? When our own skin begins to matter more for us than our neighbors and the people around us and the society at large, what happens? If you want to reap the benefits of a society, you have to commit yourself fully to the good of the other members of the community in order for for those benefits to accrue to you. Well, what about the church? Isn't the same thing true of a church? 
How long can a local church last when its members display a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward their Christian obligations? You, I thought, you know, I know they're having services down there, and that's all right, but, you know, i got things to do today. I, I just, I don't feel it today. You know, I'm not feeling it. What, what, how long can any church last if that becomes the attitude? Do you know that in order to reap the benefits of a local church, you have to commit yourself unreservedly to be part of that community, and you have to be willing to stick in there and do the things that need to be done in order for the place to work. Got to do it. I want to say a word for our Tuesday crew. I'm going to shout out the Tuesday. Did you know we have a Tuesday crew? Let me tell you something. We have a group of men who come in here on Tuesdays quietly behind the scenes who have been laboring, and I mean these guys are here before I get here on Tuesday, and a lot of times some of them are not going home until almost time for the men's Bible study Tuesday night. And, uh, you know, they are working. They are. Have you noticed what's going on here? Have you noticed that the grounds suddenly are well kept again? Did you know that our irrigation system is working again after years of half functioning? Do you know we got flags out front and attractive landscaping done out front? Have you noticed that the steeple is cleaned? Have you noticed that the roof doesn't leak anymore in the fellowship hall? What is going on? What is going on? Somebody committed themselves. They unreservedly committed themselves to give away part of their time and part of their treasure and a lot of their heart to make sure that the facility here honors God. Let me tell you what happens when we won't commit ourselves to that. We become content with mediocrity. When we're not willing to commit ourselves to anything, the natural result of that is simply this. We become content with mediocrity. Oh, I don't care if there's mold on the steeple. I don't care if there are weeds in the flower beds. I don't care whether we got donuts or not. I don't care whether anybody's feeding those kids on Wednesday night. Somebody will do it. Dear ones, for anything that's worthwhile in life, unreserved commitment is absolutely necessary in order to reap the benefits. That's what it is. What else? What about eternal life? What about eternal? That's a benefit, isn't it? I like that benefit. I like that benefit a lot. What about that? Well, maybe the best way to, to, uh, to look at that one is to look at it through a question. What if Jesus' level of commitment to you was only as great as yours to him? Suppose the Lord had said, die on a cross. I don't know. That, that, that sounds like a blood oath. I'm not sure I'm really ready to make that commitment. I've got some things I want to do. I've got some travel I'd like to do. There's some things I'd like to experience. Maybe I'll get around to it later. Let's just live together for a while and see if it works out. What if Jesus had taken that attitude for me and you? Aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad he didn't? I am so glad Jesus didn't take that attitude. Jesus said to the Father, whatever it takes, I'll do it. I am absolutely committed. I'm going to overturn death. I'm going to overturn death, and I'm going to overturn all of its damage. 
And if it means me laying myself down and going to a cross and putting on my spotless and sinless shoulders the sins of the world and paying the price for them in order to undo death and in order to undo the damage that it has done, Father, I'll do it. Unreserved commitment to me and you is what Jesus has given us. How in the world can we not be willing to give unreserved commitment to him? So here's your big so what for the day. I always have to finish with a so what, right? You ready for the so what? Just one so what today. How committed are you to overthrowing death in every area of your life for Jesus' sake? How committed are you to overthrowing death and all of its damage in every area of your life for Jesus' sake? For some of you who are in here today, you may be wondering what the fuss is about. You, you may not even, you may not, life may not even have come to you yet. Maybe you've heard today about this guy by the name of Jesus. Now, you've heard about Jesus. Everybody in America has heard about Jesus. But maybe you heard about who he really is today, that he's the one who is unreservedly committed to overthrowing death and handling your problem. If you'd like to know how to find the way out of the the pit that you've fallen into, there's a group of people who are going to be right down in the prayer room after this service is over. You can go right down that hallway. Billy Edwards, stand back there. Raise your hand, Billy. You can see Billy Edwards. He would love to have you come to him to get help and instruction today about how to find your way to Jesus. Because let me tell you something. Finding your way to Jesus is what life on planet Earth is about. It's what it's about. Maybe you're here today and you just want somebody to pray with you. Death has jumped on your marriage. I'm not talking about lostness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just... Your marriage is collapsing. Uh, Maybe the society around you has scared you to death and you'd want somebody to pray with you. Uh, You know, maybe some other area of your life has has just fallen into a hole. You want somebody to pray with you? There are people down the hallway who would love to pray with you today. You don't have to walk out of here without getting help. You don't have to walk out of here without getting help. Somebody can do it. And so consider these things. I will end with the last so what again. How committed are you to overthrowing death in every area of your life for Jesus' sake? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you gave yourself unreservedly for us and to us. At our Father's command, you committed yourself, sinless and spotless as you were from all of eternity, to the indignity of carrying all of our sins on your spotless shoulders to the cross. How can we withhold from you anything you ask of us? Make us into people who glorify your name and the name of our Father in heaven by committing ourselves unreservedly to overthrow death and all of its damage wherever we encounter it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.